You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, with the RSA Conference team, and I am thrilled today to be joined by Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired, who will be talking with me about his book, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask Andy to take a moment to introduce himself before we dive into today's topic. Andy, over to you. Thanks, Casey. Yeah, I am a senior writer at Wired, and I'm the author of this new book, Tracers in the Dark. And uh, I've covered this world of, well, just broadly hackers and cybersecurity, surveillance, encryption for the last 15 years now. And uh, in 2011, I wrote, I think, the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin, which kind of started me down this journey into the kind of crypto underworlds, very specifically for me covering the kind of subversive and dark and often illegal side of cryptocurrencies use. Mm. Well, I am certainly thrilled to have you with me today. And I did read your book, so I know what it's about. But before we start with those questions, I'd love it if you could maybe just set for our listeners the expectation of what we'll be talking about, what your book covers. Yeah, well, actually, the first piece I wrote about Bitcoin for Forbes in 2011 was titled Cryptocurrency. And I thought that I'd come up with that term. It was so early that like nobody was even using that phrase, cryptocurrency, and Bitcoin was worth a dollar. And also, as I spoke to like very early Bitcoin developers and even reached out to Satoshi Nakamoto himself or herself, who was still online at that point, but declined to be interviewed, I got this impression that this new phenomenon, Bitcoin, was meant to be, and in fact was by some descriptions, untraceable anonymous digital cash for the internet. And being the kind of reporter I am, I I was interested in this idea that it was going to unlock a whole new world of not just financial privacy, but crime on the dark web, and that it would enable money laundering and online drug deals and you know, even things like human trafficking and terrorist financing. And all of that did come to pass over the next, you know, years and the next decade, ultimately. But then if we kind of like fast forward to 2020 or so, almost a decade later, I started to see just how completely wrong I was to describe Bitcoin as untraceable or anonymous. That not only was Bitcoin traceable in some circumstances, it was kind of the opposite of untraceable. Like it turned out that if you could kind of crack the blockchain, uh, then you could follow the money in the cryptocurrency world in some respects far more easily than you could even in the world of traditional finance. And although I started to see this only around 2020 when the Department of Justice was like issuing these events and crediting this one company, Chainalysis, a cryptocurrency tracing firm, and one um, sort of takedown announcement after another. You know, it turned out, as I looked deeper, that Chainalysis had been working with a kind of small group of detectives in law enforcement who, for years, had been using cryptocurrency tracing as this incredibly powerful investigative technique 
tracing cryptocurrency to take down one massive cyber criminal operation after another. And it, I saw that cryptocurrency had actually been a kind of trap for cyber criminals that had seduced them with this, this false notion of invisibility or untraceability, when in fact it was anything but. And this small group of detectives had kind of turned the lights on and surprised one massive criminal operation after another. And each bust had been bigger than the last. And as I delved into this and, and you know, reported out those stories, I saw that they were some of the biggest I'd ever covered in my career. And that, that really is the story of Tracers in the Dark, uh, about this escalating spree of cyber criminal busts, all based on the traceability of cryptocurrency. Yeah, and it really is so fascinating. Listeners, if you haven't read it, I strongly recommend the book. It does read like a thriller, so much so that at many points, I wanted to actually let myself believe that I was reading fiction. The book evoked so many feelings of everything from fear to hope. And one takeaway for me in particular is this notion that two things can be true at once. Andrew, you talked about this presumption of privacy and anonymity with a technology that is actually designed to have a public record. So the illicit activities that happened on the dark net because of the availability of cryptocurrency were presumed to be private, yet the reality is that nothing was private for cryptocurrencies. And, you know, cryptocurrencies was the reason why hundreds of perpetrators we're charged with crimes. So can you talk to our listeners about your perspective, you know, from what you've learned for this <laughs> years long expedition of writing this book? Um, what is your perspective on the notion of privacy in the age of cryptocurrency and the impact, more importantly, that new currencies will have on law enforcement's ability to trace cyber criminals on the dark web? Well, I think in part of your, your question is, uh, you know, how in the world could we ever have thought that something like Bitcoin could be untraceable when every transaction is recorded in this blockchain, this like ledger of every single transaction that's copied out to thousands of computers around the world? I mean, the whole notion of the blockchain is that it is a list of every transaction that cannot be changed or erased. And that's how Bitcoin works and how why you can't counterfeit a Bitcoin or forge a transaction. And the misunderstanding about cryptocurrencies anonymity or potential for privacy comes from the notion that like the blockchain, although it recorded every single payment ever made with Bitcoin, it only recorded those payments between Bitcoin addresses. And so, you know, back in 2011, when I started covering this stuff and for years to come and throughout the years, for instance, that the Silk Road dark web drug market was using Bitcoin as its central payment mechanism. We all looked at this and thought, well, if you can't figure out somebody's Bitcoin addresses, then you can't identify their transactions. Even if you can see them right there on the blockchain, you can see somebody paid a certain number of Bitcoins to somebody else, but you can't, if you can't figure out anything about who those Bitcoin addresses are, then that's still, if not an anonymous transaction, at least a pseudonymous one. Like you can hide behind the pseudonym of your address. It was really only like starting in 2013 with this seminal cryptocurrency tracing paper um, written by Sarah Micklejohn, a, a researcher, or she was the lead author anyway, of this paper that she worked on at the University of California, San Diego, um, where she began to show with her collaborators that you could start to prove through these kind of clustering techniques that hundreds or sometimes thousands of addresses 
belonged to a single entity or service or person. And then, you know, you could start from there to follow the money, you know, following like the Bitcoins as they move from one address to the next, sometimes using some other clever tricks to sort of figure out which path to take down forks in the road until the money hit a cryptocurrency exchange where usually those exchanges, you know, when they only allowed you to trade your Bitcoins for dollars or vice versa, if you gave identifying information, if, you know, they complied with these know your customer requirements. So that meant that law enforcement could send a subpoena to the exchange and then identify the person behind those clusters that Sarah had started to identify and kind of group. So that is really like the, the first massive hole blown into the illusion of Bitcoin's anonymity. But, you know, it was only when her tricks began to be kind of integrated into automated software sold by companies like Chainalysis, which is now this $8.6 billion behemoth of cryptocurrency tracing. That's their, you know, their market cap these days that law enforcement began to be able to buy these techniques and use this service, this automated tool to follow the money on the blockchain like never before and and really just tear the lid off of this hidden underworld economy. And and the central player here in, in many parts of the book is actually IRS, the Internal Revenue Services criminal investigators, who use Chainalysis's tools to help to solve the, the Mt. Gox theft, the theft of half a billion dollars of cryptocurrency from mm-hmm. the first cryptocurrency exchange, which was bankrupted by hackers. And then to identify the administrator of Alpha Bay, a, a dark web crime and drug market that was ultimately 10 times the size of the Silk Road. And then finally to take down the Welcome to Video child sexual abuse video network this child exploitation dark web service that was by some measures the biggest of its kind and arrest 337 of the site's users around the world, men, you know, who were uploading and downloading and, um, and abusing sometimes hands-on and recording abuse of children. So like the impact of this was gigantic. I guess I, you know, I've tried not to entirely like um, applaud the fact that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency turned out to be the opposite of private, but it led, it just undeniable to these incredibly dramatic cases that I've just kind of tried to tell as a reporter. Yeah. And certainly, you know, you demonstrate a mastery of your craft in being able to tell a story without guiding the reader to take a stand either way, right? Because I think to your point, you're not really applauding the work of the IRS criminal investigators, and you're not really applauding the work of Chainalysis. And you sort of leave the reader begging to be told, where should I stand on this? Because there is this slippery slope that if you go down either path, you know, things could go horribly awry. And I'm sure you read the review by Mark, I believe his last name is Gimeon, uh, in the New York Times, who said, and I quote, at the book's close, Greenberg reaches for a bigger point, bringing back one of his protagonists, the cryptographer, as you mentioned, Sarah Micklejohn, to point out how the tools used to catch criminals might be employed just as easily in the service of mass surveillance. And this is surveillance and privacy is something that the book touches on quite heavily. It's a reasonable concern, 
Gamin wrote, but relies on some slippery slope speculation that doesn't feel totally convincing. From the stories here in which piecing together each set of transactions takes months of legwork and a fair dose of luck, even when the targets aren't exactly top shelf criminal masterminds, it doesn't seem like the age of wholesale financial surveillance is dangerously near. You know, I'm quoting his review because it sort of struck me that like, oh, wow, I felt very differently upon reading the book. So after all the work that you did in writing, what is your perspective on the threat of wholesale financial surveillance? Well, in some other parts of that review, Mark was very generous. and I don't want to like argue with him here, but I, I did even tweet to him after reading it, like the age of wholesale financial surveillance isn't near. I mean, I think it's, it's already arrived. <laughs> Let's just agree right. to disagree on that because in fact, cryptocurrency was meant to be a kind of antidote to the wholesale financial surveillance that is, that is already here. I mean, if you use your credit card, if you use anything but cash, essentially, which is dwindling in its applications in real life, um, then you are already scrutinized to a minute degree in the mm-hmm. way that you spend money. And Bitcoin and cryptocurrency of other cryptocurrencies were meant to be an, a, a solution to that for the internet. And the fact that they are not, I do think, poses like a real ethical dilemma. I mean, yes, it seemed dangerous when cryptocurrency was thought to be you know, fully untraceable and people believed that it was going to usher in this age of crypto anarchy and total lawlessness on the dark web. Um, but then if it goes in the other direction too, you know, I, I do think that that's not a slippery slope. It's like already quite dangerous. People are already and have used cryptocurrency for legitimate purposes around the world, in some cases in ways where they were trying to evade surveillance. They thought that they were evading mm-hmm. surveillance in repressive regimes or to raise money for like opposition movements in dictatorships. And you know, I, I do think though that there are still future applications where people should be warned not to use cryptocurrency because they may think that they can perhaps like buy abortion medications online using some cryptocurrency they believe is untraceable when in fact law enforcement agencies can trace that and prosecute them. And that's perhaps, you know, looking ahead in that way, like in this post row world or at mm. other applications of people trying to break the law that, that I nonetheless think have like ethical grounding. Um, perhaps that's a slippery slope, but it's like an extremely short one. <laughs> it's like, right, see it, right. You can see it right there in front of us. And, and so, you know, I do think that Sarah Micklejohn, when she points to her just deep ambivalence about the fact that the techniques that she came up with to trace cryptocurrency are now used by law enforcement agencies, I'm with her. And although these techniques, of course, as I said, have been used to take down people doing really bad things on the dark web, I just didn't want to leave the reader with the impression at the end of this book that this is just a simple cops and robbers story without, right. you know, a more nuanced ethical picture. Yeah, there were so many nuances. And and I really did feel Micklejohn's ambivalence um, in those closing chapters. Um, in your acknowledgments, you wrote, I remain grateful that there are such people motivated to take the time and in some cases the risk to tell these stories simply because events are too significant to leave untold. Yet at the close of the book, the heroes (laughs) never returned with that magic elixir that we hope for in the hero's journey. So what is it that you hope readers take away from the book? Why was it so important to you that these events be told? Well, I don't know. I'm a reporter, so I just 
feel like storytelling is important for its own sake. Like, I don't know, I, I, I've done this long enough that I can't stand the notion of there being these epic detective stories. And I hope that, you know, when people read this book, they'll agree like that some of the events here are just truly stranger than fiction and just, and the notion that the main characters of those stories would take them to their grave, you know, that, that I can't really abide that as a, as a professional journalist and storyteller, I guess. And so when, when I'm, who I'm talking about really is like, there are several like protagonists in the book who, of course, I do name and I tell their stories in, in detail, um, including like Tigran Gambarian, who is this criminal investigator at the IRS criminal investigations, who in some ways is, you know, involved in practically every one of these cases and always seem to like come up with the next clue, the big turn in the case. Um, but then there are other agents who asked me not to use their names, gave me information, sometimes, yeah, at risk to their own careers. And not even because like they wanted to like get some truth out there or like warn people or I don't know, send a message to criminals or anything, but really just because they had lived through a really crazy detective story on a huge scale that deserve to be told. So that's really who I'm talking about in the acknowledgments there. Yeah. Another question for you. Toward the end of the book, when you're meeting with one of the protagonists, Groniger, about chain analysis's involvement in the colonial pipeline investigation, he tells you that you'll have to write another book in five years in order to get that information. So is this foreshadowing for the reader? Do you have your next project in mind? Well, sorry. I also should back up and I think I can answer your, one of your other questions at the same time. Like you were saying like, but they didn't come up with the magical elixir here, you know? And, and I think both of those questions apply to like ransomware um, in particular, which is this one case where cryptocurrency continues to be used for really dangerous and disruptive crimes. Hackers are still demanding ransoms in cryptocurrency and the fact that that can be traced has not actually been a silver bullet for that plague on the digital world. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, it turns out is really because tracing there and even visibility and identification of who did these crimes is not enough. Like you can point to exactly where the money is, but sometimes it's still beyond your reach if it's in a non-extradition country like Russia with ransomware or North Korea with the, you know, the massive thefts of cryptocurrency that that country's hackers are still carrying out all the time. But then your other question, you know, regarding like Michael Groniger's statement that I'll have to write another book in five years. He was really talking about the colonial pipeline case where Chainalysis traced a ransom payment um, where, you know, in the, in the case of colonial pipeline, which was hacked and extorted for $5 million. Um, and Chainalysis helped to recover a big chunk of that money mm-hmm. and it's still not clear how exactly that was carried out, despite the fact that the hackers were almost certainly all based in Russia in that case. How did the FBI, which analysis's help, actually get that money back? And yeah, I mean, I would love to tell that story. I don't know if that's another book, but it's something that I absolutely would love to crack open. And just as with the others, deserves to finally be told. If anybody listening was involved in the Colonial Pipeline hack, uh, and the response to it, then yes, I'm I'm here and want to tell that story. Wonderful. I, I don't know if you saw uh, headlines today that uh, it was like a, a dark web marketplace it had a billboard in Russia, was able to just purchase advertisement on a public billboard in Russia. 
Wow, I did not see that. But I think it does speak to just like the the fact that crypto anarchy is in some ways like happening, but only in certain geographies, it turns out. It's not even like the untraceability of the dark web or cryptocurrency that's enabling it, but but political boundaries and just like the total immorality of the Kremlin, honestly. Mm. So I have one final question for you before we wrap up. For me, the book was more a Platonian tale akin to the Ring of Gyges. I just kept thinking of, you know, if you had the ring and you could be invisible, what would you do? Um, you know, and the notion Plato asserts is that human beings are only diverted into the path of justice by force of law because all men believe in their hearts that injustice is far more profitable to the individual than justice. And I think your book really does a phenomenal job of displaying that theory of human behavior. But fun question for you, if you did have the ring of Gyges that turned you invisible and you could get away with doing something unjust, what would you do? Wow. Well, um, I love this extremely highbrow reference uh, and analogy <laughs> you've come up with. I, I honestly, I even when I was looking for the epigraph of the book, I was going to quote something from Lord of the Rings where there is this ring that can make you invisible, or at least you think you're invisible. You're invisible to all normal people, but the ring wraiths actually can see you even more easily across great distances, which is, I think, like a wonderful analogy, but like not quite more of a middle brow one compared to yours um, <laughs> about how Bitcoin made you look invisible, but actually like chainalysis could see you across the entire world and see exactly what you were doing. I didn't use that in the end because my book editor told me that Lord of the Rings is, is played out for those sorts of quotes, but um, <laughs> I should have gone with a more platonic quotation. But I also don't entirely agree with, with Plato here. Like, I don't think that all people, if they're given invisibility, just immediately start to do the most unjust thing. You know, I don't think that like with the Ring of Gyges, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but I don't think I would become a dark web drug lord myself. Um, The the people in this book, it's it's a really interesting idea because, like as you say, like all sorts of people were pulled in by the seduction of of Bitcoin's perceived anonymity to do criminal, dangerous, really unethical things, and that included you know, multiple corrupt cops in these stories. Federal um, agents. Federal yeah. agents at the DEA, the Secret Service, ultimately in the Welcome to Video case, like multiple federal agents were found to have used this child exploitation network. Right. Um, and, and even, you know, I, I do quote Tigran Gambarian, who he believes, you know, in the, he has the kind of more black and white idea of crime that like without law enforcement, people just descend into chaos. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe that's true to some degree, but I just don't believe that like all people are drawn to immorality to that degree, I suppose. And I try to give humanity more credit than that uh, as a whole, maybe. Um, And as as I've said, like, I don't even think that every use of cryptocurrency for anonymity or untraceability is illegitimate. I mean, you asked very early on and I didn't answer this question about less traceable currencies like Zcash and Monero that are becoming more popular and to varying degrees. I mean, I think Zcash in particular does seem like it might actually be untraceable. And, you know, I don't yet know what kind of world that's ushering in, whether that will be truly a bunch of like people putting on the ring of Gyges to do the most dangerous and terrible thing possible. I think there will be also be a, another side to it where 
journalists and dissidents and activists and people seeking privacy for legitimate reasons use that tool as well. Right. Um, right. No, but you, I don't mean to dodge your, your final question, there, like <laughs> what I would do with this invisibility. I think, honestly, I don't know if I would do something like truly unjust or straight up criminal, but you know, I think I would probably put on that ring of gaijus to like spy on people for journalistic purposes, honestly, <laughs> if I could. And I, you know, my last book was about the Russian hacker group Sandworm, who, you know, carried out many of the most dangerous and destructive cyber attacks in history. And I, as part of that book, I went to Russia and I like went to their office in Moscow, but I couldn't get in, of course. And if I had that. Right. Imagine that, if you could have. Yes. Yeah. I could have, like, just like tailgated somebody right in, watched over these guys' shoulders as they. Right. You know, and you would have been using the ring for good. So. <laughs> yes. I mean, criminal, certainly, but like hopefully for good. And I think that there is that side to these technologies as well. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be a high school teacher of English and taught the Ring of Gaijis and used to ask this question of seniors and got a lot of really interesting <laughs> responses. The first year I asked it, I was like, oh, I did not expect that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure my answer as a high school senior would have right. been a lot darker than it maybe <laughs> is as a 40-something man. Yes. Yes. Andy, thank you so much for being here. What a treat it was to be able to talk with you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to secure payments and cryptocurrency, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. If you haven't gotten his book yet, you'll be able to access Andy's book at the RSA Conference Bookstore in San Francisco in April.